On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we'll talk to Aaron Stanford, the star of the sci-fi series 12 Monkeys, and I discuss those rare occurrences of casting serendipity where performers have the opportunity to return to roles in a way that no one could have foretold. But now, straight from the day room at the JD People's Mental Hospital, this is 1.21 Gigawatts. there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number four for April 2016. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. If all that sounds good to you, you're in the right place. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. The life of an actor can be a strange ride. The majority of folks making their way through life as performers may not have a great sense of when or where their next gig will come from, how significant it may or may not be to their career, if it's going to be incredibly fulfilling, or if it's going to be a payday to make sure the mortgage gets paid. I'm certainly not going to judge any actor for the choices they make. It's hard to know what decisions will result in the best outcome, and they may never know what other variables are going to rear their ugly heads and mess it all up. If you're lucky, you might land a one-off role which will earn you an Academy Award, like Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker in The Dark Knight. Maybe you land a gig in a long-running franchise which keeps you employed for decades. I'm looking at you, various casts of Star Trek. Even if you're somewhat typecast as a result, the golden handcuffs are still effective at Warp 5 after all. And then there are those strange cases where one supporting role blossoms into something remarkable that no one, performer, writers, franchise heads, no one could have predicted. These are the too-good-to-be-true second acts of the film and television industry, and sci-fi and fantasy films have some remarkable cases. The most recent example reared its regal red head during the recent trailer for the upcoming Star Wars anthology movie Rogue One. The story takes place just before the events of Episode 4 A New Hope, and is therefore packed with nostalgic delights from the original trilogy. Stormtroopers, Adats, Gonk Droids, the jungle-vined rebel base on Yavin 4, absurdly uncomfortable-looking rebel helmets. And who is that? In the white gown and excessive sci-fi bling? Why, it's the aforementioned red-headed rebel leader, Mon Mothma. Moviegoers first met Mon Mothma in 1983's Return of the Jedi when she was played by Caroline Blakiston, who was most notable for telling us that many Bothans died to bring us pivotal plot information. Seriously bringing the room down, Mon Mothma. A younger version of this character popped up in 2005's Revenge of the Sith in a famous scene where she and a handful of other senators decide that Chancellor Palpatine's war powers are getting a little out of hand and they begin to plant the seeds for the Rebel Alliance. Oh, you don't remember that part? Well, that's because it got cut and relegated to the deleted scenes section of Disc 2 of the DVD release. Oh, the indignity of Disc 2. Because who wants to see a scene where Mon Mothma says the word alliance when we can see another scene of General Grievous coughing instead? In that film, Mon Mothma was played by Genevieve O'Reilly, a talented actress who probably cashed her episode 3 paycheck and sighed deeply at her character's absence at the premiere. 
But 11 years later, who gets the last laugh? Genevieve O'Reilly, who returns to the role for Rogue One. And this is after the Star Wars movies were quote-unquote finished. Lucasfilm was sold and got new leadership, and anthology movies jumping around the Star Wars timeline suddenly became a thing. Somehow, Genevieve O'Reilly remained in someone's Rolodex, and she's back again for the very first time. A significantly more famous example of the one-off role that became something massive also originates in the galaxy far, far away, with Ian McDiarmid as Sith Mastermind and Chief Galactic String Puller Palpatine. McDiarmid was only 37 years old when he portrayed Emperor Palpatine in 1983's Return of the Jedi, but expert prosthetics and a great physical performance made the audience believe that the Emperor was an ancient, withered creature who snacked on hate like finger food and may or may not have been the same horrible creature that tried to poison Snow White. Return of the Jedi was the first time we had our last Star Wars movie, and so it made sense to assume that we weren't going to be seeing this character ever again, especially since, spoiler alert, he ultimately explodes into some sort of blue energy wind. Worst Mardi Gras ever. But when the Star Wars prequels geared up 16 years later and actors like Ewan McGregor and Jake Lloyd were being cast to play younger versions of the Star Wars characters, Ian McDiarmid had aged perfectly to fit the role of the middle-aged version of Palpatine, who is now a popular young go-getter of a senator with big plans to clean up government corruption and kill the Jedi and take over the galaxy. And regardless of the mixed opinions of the Star Wars prequels, it's hard to argue that Ian McDiarmid wasn't one of the best parts of that trilogy. But my favorite example of an actor playing the long game without even realizing it is the amazing case of Paul Bettany and his path in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In 2008, when a giant interconnected superhero mega-franchise was still just a cross-your-fingers, oh-god-I-hope-this-works series of post-it notes on the office wall of Marvel producer Kevin Feige, Paul Bettany was cast for a vocal performance in Iron Man. He'd be playing Jarvis, the user interface computer system devised by Tony Stark to help control the Iron Man suits, keep things running smoothly around the Stark properties, and presumably to provide driving directions when Stark's Garmin was just too boring. The calm British tones of Bettany as Jarvis were present for three Iron Man films and two Avengers movies, usually telling Tony when the power levels were too low in the armor and offering to get Pepper Potts on speed dial if things were looking really dire. But then, this voice got a form as the disembodied persona of Jarvis was implanted within the embodied android, The Vision, during Avengers Age of Ultron. And who is playing this new evolution of the character? Why none other than Paul Bettany? No word on whether Bettany would have preferred to just continue to speak into a microphone rather than endure over three hours of makeup a day to transform into this character, finally given physical manifestation. You know, I love this one, since there's no way anyone could have foreseen this coming. I refuse to believe that Bettany was hired for Jarvis but was told, listen. Paul, it's just a couple hours in the sound booth now, but in seven years you'll be on camera as a green and purple robot. That is exactly what Paul Bettany's agent sounds like, by the way. I do my research, people. And if they did have this character trajectory fully mapped out seven years ago, perhaps Kevin Feige is the true Sith mastermind and galactic string puller after all. Hmm. So, dear listeners, who am I forgetting? What examples do you have of actors that didn't just appear in sequels as the same character, but somehow defied the odds to serendipitously return to a role when all logic said that this chapter was finished for them? 
Let me know on Twitter where I am at 121GeekaWatts or at the 1.21GeekaWatts Facebook page. If you can identify these examples, I will happily share my glaring emissions in a future episode. Have you found the night room? Have you walked through a red forest? Do you have a theory on the identity of the witness? If these questions make no sense to you whatsoever, you're missing out on the monstrously addictive sci-fi series 12 Monkeys. The show drew its time travel meets pandemic inspiration from the 1995 feature film, but quickly forged its own elaborate path and never looked back. A few weeks ago, I talked with the star of the show, Aaron Stanford, about his character Cole, his time in the X-Men films, and his love for Downton Abbey. In January 2015, 12 Monkeys debuted on Sci-Fi and immediately jumped to the head of the pack of Sci-Fi's initiative to put more quality science fiction series at the forefront of their broadcast schedule. Season 1 of 12 Monkeys is intriguing, it's absolutely addictive, and is very rewarding to fans of intelligent time travel stories. And one of the main reasons that made Season 1 so binge-tastic is Aaron Stanford, who plays the show's main protagonist, James Cole, and I'm thrilled to have him on the line right now. Aaron, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Thank you. You're very kind. You're very kind. <laughs> um, where are you at right now? Are you are you still up in Toronto shooting? Nope. I'm uh, back in Los Angeles. We finished shooting in Toronto uh, early December. Oh, all right. Well, congratulations. I didn't realize it had been that long so far. Um you know, in, in that it intro... Has, yeah, I, we or, ordinarily... Uh, last year we premiered in January, uh, so it right. wasn't really that long to wait. This year they, uh, they shifted it a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of nice, I would think. Mm-hmm. Still fresh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why not? Right. So in, in that intro, I purposefully called Cole the protagonist of the series rather than the hero or the good guy because Cole is so much more complex than that. Um, in season one, your character mm-hmm. begins as this reluctant, desperate, and not entirely moral guy. So even though he's the hero of the story, the audience is left to wonder initially about his motivations and reliability, even though he's the best time-traveling hope for mankind. Um, the point is, I like your character, man. I like it a lot. <laughs> Playing someone this complex... <laughs> Thank you. I, I, a... I wish I could take more credit for it. Uh, so much <laughs> of it is... Um... Is uh, is in the writing, and, and you're absolutely right. That that's what that's what makes him really interesting, and I mean that's what makes characters interesting in general. Is, is um, you know if you can if you can really give them some complexity and uh, sort of break the the you know the the archetypes of of the hero or the villain. Um, that's that's when it's something that becomes really fun to watch. Is when the characters become uh, complicated and human. Yeah, absolutely, and and he has got he's got a really uh, complex but but very clear arc of growth um, that has got to be very satisfying naturally. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed it, and I think it's great. Um, you know, he he starts off as a pretty desperate character who um, grew up in the apocalypse, and uh, he is seen pretty much the worst of times and he's seen uh, the worst of, of people and um, and he has sunk to the depths himself. He has a history that over the course of season one gets revealed that um, he's done some, some very bad things in this 
in this world to uh, in order to survive. And uh, he has a lot of regrets about that. And that's one of his primary motivations for, um, for signing on to this, this time travel mission to save the world. Right, right. Which I, I think is really a, a great twist uh, since he's in those early episodes is so often quick to violence. Like we see uh, Cole and his lifelong friend Ramsey, of course, trying to scrape out that existence in the, in the future. And they fall in with the villainous Deacon and West Seven. And, and indeed, it's not Cole. Usually it's Ramsey is the one with the conscience who objects to senseless violence, while Cole is the guy that says, hey, man, whatever we need to do, we're going to do. Which uh, which I think is cool. Like yeah. it, it requires <laughs> it requires this Jiminy Cricket character in a way to to save his soul for for a little while. It's true. They and they kind of, those two characters sort of take turns. Yeah. Um, being being the the moral checks and balance system for each other. But yeah, in the in the flashbacks and in the history, it definitely is Ramsey who. Um, who uh, is much more reticent about um, about doing dirt? Um, but you know, it's it's interesting. But violence for both of them, it's it's interesting the contrast between them and uh, someone like you know the Cassandra Rayleigh character from uh, you know from the Western world in our period of time, where you know just the idea of, of violence or death or murder is so alien to them. It's so outside of their norms that they're just, they're so naturally, um, you know, uh, frightened by it. And to both the Cole and the Ramsey character, it's a, it's an ordinary part of, of everyday life. So it's something that they, uh, have much more facility with. Right. Um, apparently the side effect of being the hero on 12 Monkeys is that the writers really seem to enjoy beating you up. Uh, <laughs> you get bamboo shoots <laughs> under the fingernails, you're pulling bullets out of yourself, any number of violent interrogations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm exaggerating by asking this, of course, but have there been any days on this show that the makeup department has not had to add bruises or wounds or a bloody nose or something to you? <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's- it, it's a pretty regular part of the uh, of, of the rotation. Yeah, yeah. Terry's a sadist. He likes to watch people suffer. It's, it's not just my character. You get the, the Jennifer Goins character. I, I was there shooting one day, watching them drop various different insects and, and vermin onto her face. And I don't know. It's something something Terry enjoys. So we all have to go with it. <laughs> You know, in one of the behind-the-scenes videos on the Sci-Fi webpage, uh, one of the cast members, um, I think it's Todd Stashwick, actually, who plays Deacon, of course, says something to the effect of that one of the most appealing aspects to the show is that even though the narrative is incredibly twisty uh, and really draws you in, characterization and relationships remain as the focal point of the show, which I assume you would agree with. Yeah, I do, um, and that's something that that we've talked about a lot uh, in making the show. You know, time tra- a time travel show can become very convoluted. It can be very difficult to keep track of parallel timelines and what's happening when, and you know, what are we doing to negate the thing that happened ten years ago, and and all the rest of that. It, it can get you know it can get confusing. Um, but yeah, they've they've always been very careful to write a story where the 
relationships and the emotion of the characters remains fairly linear. Um, so it's it's sort of a, a compass for us that we can uh, that we can follow along through all the twists and turns. That's that's true. I, I understand what you mean because even uh, indeed some of the densest episodes as far as time travel, um, which would uh, scramble any normal brain, would uh, <laughs> really do seem to have a, a consistent linear through line uh, emotionally that um, you can always latch onto, even if even if you have to consult your notes to determine, all right, hold on a second. So in the 2040s, such and such happened, but in 2015, yeah, I like that. So let's, let's talk about some of those relationships really quickly. I, I love that Cole's gruffness with, with Cassie uh, begins to melt away little by little as he realizes his jumps to her timeline are numbered. Um, and I think you have a gorgeous episode when... Uh, you're at a museum reception, and Cole just sort of finally decides he wants to take a moment. Like, let's maybe let's dance. Can we share a drink? It's it's really touching, and it's an interesting <laughs> breakthrough mo- moment for him. I love it. I know people people think that Cole wanted retribution. Really, all he wants is to dance. You know, <laughs> just give give the, give the man a chance. Um, yeah, it's it's really nice moment. I I, I think. Um, I think when you, you know, when when we start with him at the very beginning of everything, he's pretty much given up on life. He's um he's he's done with it. Uh he's he's been through so much and uh and he's lost so much and lost so much of himself that he just I don't think he takes any any uh pleasure out of life anymore. And um you know he's he's essentially on, on a suicide mission. He wants to change the past so he can wipe his entire history clean up to a certain point and uh, you know and kill the kill the person he's become. Um, so he's 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 pretty dead inside. And then as he spends time with Cassie and he spends time you know in in a different era where where life is happening and there's music and and you know delicious things to eat and you know just pleasant parts of life he he gradually starts to take all of that in and it starts to affect him and um suddenly life begins to actually have value for him so it, it complicates things right right one of Cole's other defining relationships is with his lifelong friend Ramsey, who he grew up with, survived through the apocalyptic virus with, the subsequent collapse of civilization with, uh, and of course, to say mm-hmm. anymore, we'll be getting into massive spoilers, so I won't do that. Um, the point mm-hmm. is, you and Kirk Acevedo have a fantastic lived-in comfort together on screen. Uh, how has that partnership felt off screen? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great relationship. Again, I, I, I hesitate to take, uh, too much credit for it because just, it's so much of it's just on the page, you know, they, they took great pains to give these characters this, you know, very rich shared history and, um, you know, create this sort of, um, you know, brotherly, uh, relationship background that just it just works very well so so let's talk about the writers they indeed you keep bringing them up and uh, they do deserve all kinds of uh, kudos for 
uh, a lot of the success uh, and and the way this show grabs you. I get the sense through social media that you guys as a cast are all fairly close and genuinely enjoy each other and that you genuinely enjoy the show. So I'm curious what it's like when you all get together for a table read and learn what's going to happen next when you're sitting around that table turning pages. Um, first of all, I like to imagine that there are Back to the Future-style blackboards mapping out the timeline shenanigans all over that room. But um, <laughs> so, I, so many wish, crazy things happen in this. visual aid like that. All the, all the whiteboards <laughs> are in the writer's room back in, back in Los Angeles. Uh, when we're Darn shooting man. in Toronto, we, uh, we, we, instead of taking a lunch break, everybody grabs some food from the from the little cafeteria line, and then we all go to the room and and try to tear through the uh, the read through as quickly <laughs> as we can. There's very there, there's not a lot of spare time on a shoot schedule like this. Um, everything happens very very quickly. Um, that being said, you know it, it is it's always um, rewarding to crack a script open for the first time and and uh, you know live through. Uh, live live it through with the rest of the cast and and uh, you know experience it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Season one took some insane twists and turns through the timeline, which resulted in, uh, and I mean this in a good way, some aggressive character development and uh, and turns for some folks. Do you have favorite revelations or twists from season one, even if they don't belong to you? Was there ever a moment in any of those read read throughs that? Someone read a line or turned the page, and the room or you had a collective. What? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the the development of um, of jo- of Doctor Jones. Yeah, uh, the Barbara Sukula character, and uh, I can't. I don't think I'm even allowed to spoil the first season anymore, even though it's already <laughs> broadcast. Right? Like everyone's really really sensitive about that. Well, I, you know, people watching it for the first time, but. Yeah, that that might what, what be a, that saying? might be a good call since it's so fresh on Hulu. There's a, I think that there's a lot of binge watching going on. Uh, I'm I'm personally yeah. very thankful. Yeah, well, I mean the things, spoiler so. rules are the spoiler rules are crazy now. It's like you just you just flat out not allowed to uh, to ever <laughs> talk, discuss the plot of anything. So you know, I, I uh, without without giving anything away, I just think her development is really interesting, and and uh, you think she's coming from one place at the at the beginning and her motivations seem fairly straightforward and, and fairly clear and then bit by bit things are revealed to show that maybe it's not as straightforward as you might think and that uh she might be capable of of a lot more than you think she is. Um so I, I enjoyed watching that. Yeah, absolutely. She and she performs it beautifully as well. Mm-hmm. So when when this podcast kicked off, uh, my first guest was actually Todd Stashwick, uh, who, as discussed, plays Deacon on the series. Todd and I know each other from way back uh, from his New York improv days. Um, and first of all, Todd says to tell you that his love for you runs deep and uh, that you share a love of good bourbon, apparently. And that he yeah. also... <laughs> He, he credits you with knowing where to find the best Poe in Toronto and also the surliest waitresses. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. I think, I think the surly, the surly uh, waitresses find me. I just, sure, I, I think I bring out the worst uh, in, in, in bartenders. Just, I, I believe that. Face. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we we have a good time out, uh, up in Toronto with with a little bit of a uh, little bit of free time that we have. Um, you know, it's nice to, that most of the uh, of the cast and crew does get along very well. Um, so it's it's a nice uh, nice environment. That's great. See, uh, Todd Todd also says that you do a very solid Kirk Estevito impression. Everybody does a solid Kirk <laughs> Estevito impression. <laughs> Take your pick. Uh, I, I won't be I won't be doing one here. But, uh, oh, that's a shame. The, the, yeah, I, I think you're right. The, the guy has the guy has very very distinctive. Uh, very distinctive speech pattern, and uh, it's it's like um, it's like Chris Walken. You know what I mean? Everybody right. everybody has one. Right. It, it does seem like as long as you uh, throw like a brother on the end of it, you, you, it's hard to go wrong. There are no straight lines, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's about right. That's 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 about, that's right. about right. That's him. So um, I realize this is basically a moot point as viewers head into season two and the TV series is a wildly different beast than the 1995 film that um, shares the name and a few character names and and the basic premise. But in the early days of production of of season one, were you aware of any kind of concern that the show needed to drastically differentiate itself from the 12 Monkeys film or choices made to discourage comparisons to the film? Were you ever aware of any of that? I wouldn't say there was any concern about it. I think it was so clear from the very beginning that it, it was such a different animal that there there was no that, that was just the choice they made. That that was what they were going to do. They weren't going to try to remake the movie. It was pointless to do so. The movie is fantastic, and uh, you know there, there's no way we were going to attempt to to try to do a watered down you know, exact mm-hmm. replica of, of what they did. And, you know, it, it's it's very, very clear just in the casting that they really wanted to depart from the film. I mean, you know, casting myself in in a role that, that Bruce Willis played, casting uh, Emily Hampshire in the, uh, in the iconic uh, Brad Pitt role, uh, Amanda Schulz is, is very different from Madeline Stowe. So, you know, they just, they, populated it with people who were going to be a very strong uh, cue that, that this was a, is, a, is a different iteration of the story. Right, right. So you're nearly finished. And in the first season, you, you also see, um, uh, I would say that basically episode one, the pilot, is where they stick the most closely to what happened in the film and they they cover most of it a very truncated version of it in that first pilot episode and as soon as episode two comes out it has gone off in a completely new direction yeah i i agree as someone who also is a fan of that film you're you're right it does not take long at all to uh, go off the reservation as it were um and chart your own course entirely yeah, yeah. So you've finished shooting season two at this point, as you said, even though we, the audience, are still a couple weeks away from the premiere. Uh, Not looking for spoilers, of course, but are there any season two highlights you can share? Uh, I know that uh, you get to work with, uh, or that you did work with Brendan Coyle on season two, yeah? Yeah, man, that was pretty amazing. (laughs) Um, We've we've had a lot of amazing talent on the show, and yeah, working 
with him was um was fantastic. I, I was a, a huge fan of um of Downton Abbey when it came out. Uh love just that type of thing in general of British period dramas and mm-hmm. um you know actually getting a chance to be in a scene with somebody that you're a big fan of and having him turn out to be you know, uh, such a class act. It's uh, it's a big payoff. That's excellent. That's that's so good to hear. As as someone in a similar boat who is a big fan of Downton as well, to uh, know that any one of those folks might pop up, especially Brendan Coyle, and like you're a good guy. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. So as you may be aware, there are some very active 12 Monkeys fan groups on social media and in other corners of the internet. I've got uh, one or two questions specifically from the Addicts of the Twelve Monkeys Facebook group, which I thought were pretty great, actually. Uh, Maria Foss from that group asks, what is Aaron's favorite Twelve Monkeys fandom moment and or which is his weirdest or most uncomfortable? So uh, has anything truly bizarre happened to you at New York Comic Con or at other uh, conventions or anything like that that uh, the world needs to be terrified to know? (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing, nothing truly bizarre. I mean, when you go to a uh, convention or, co- or a comic con like that, I mean, the the rules of of um, you know civil behavior sort of go out the out the window. <laughs> so you're you're hoping and expecting people to uh, to behave oddly. Um, but so no, I've never had anybody do anything that that creeps me out or anything along those lines. I've seen some great some great um, artwork on social media, a lot of really nice portraits, sketches. Uh, there was one person who made, I think they, I think they sculpted it themselves of, of, of a little um, like toy figurine of, of Cole and Jennifer Goins. Uh, so stuff like that is, um, it's a, it's a kick to, uh, to see it. And it's really nice. People are out there and if they, they're interested enough in the show and they think enough of it that, you know, it's occupying different spheres of, of their life. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's very cool. Well done. 12 monkeys fans. You're not coming off as crazy. You're coming off as devoted and lovely. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> Here's another one from the addicts of the 12 monkeys Facebook group. Uh, Sharon Hather. I hope you're saying your name right. Sharon wrote, Aaron's character, Burkhoff on Nikita, was kind of the comic relief who would suddenly have surprisingly serious moments, whereas Cole on 12 Monkeys is a pretty serious guy who suddenly says something very funny when you least expect it. So the question is, would he rather play a funny guy who is occasionally badass or a badass who is occasionally funny? (laughs) Or both? Um, Well, I think think that's that's an interesting observation. It it is... um it is kind of a direct inversion. Um, and I think in season two, we, you, there are a lot more of those comic moments. Uh, they, they're, they were looking, I, I guess the show kind of naturally sort of ended up having, I don't want to say a lighter tone. The rapport between the characters becomes a little bit easier um, because the relationships have advanced so much. So they, they kind of have a more natural back and forth. And out of that, a lot more, comedy sort of naturally occurs. Um, but, you know, I, the answer is I, I don't really have a preference. I just, I do have a preference for characters who, who do possess that sort of uh, duality. You know, you're, 
you're always looking in, in when you're playing a character you're always looking to find you know the angel and the devil and the devil and the angel you want to find those little moments where the the character behaves contrary to what you might think is his nature or, or who he really is um that's what what builds an interesting character Sure. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about your training in early days as a performer, because uh, if I'm, uh, if the internet isn't lying to me, you started at Rutgers but ended up in London for a time. Is that right? London was part of the Rutgers program. Uh, I went I to see. a program. It was it was called the Mason Gross School of the Arts, um, and at the time it had this this foreign exchange program in, in London. It was in its infancy. So I, I had the, the pleasure of going to London and, and studying over there for, uh, for a semester. And the program is still around, only now it's advanced to the point where the students get a full year in London studying uh, at the Globe Theatre, which is, which is pretty amazing. Mm. That's that is amazing. That's uh, that would be an incredible opportunity yeah. for any performing student, I would think. Yeah, it sounds yeah. pretty great. <laughs> yeah, darn it! Where was it when you were going through there? That was <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic when I went too. <laughs> has come a long way. Right, right. Um, you know, I think I'd lose all my geek cred uh, if I didn't ask you uh, briefly about your time as an evil mutant in the second and third X Men movies. Um, you played Pyro, mm-hmm. who, as the name would indicate, of course, could control fire, um, which was a nice featured role since, uh, for two reasons. A, you're Magneto's right-hand man, uh, which I'm hoping that means mm-hmm. you've got good Ian McKellen stories. Uh, <laughs> and, and B, that usually meant some good fights against Iceman since those films couldn't resist the whole fire and ice thing. Um, was that a fun experience for you? Yeah, it was amazing. And it was, it was very early in my career, um, I signed on to do to shoot X-Men 2 you know literally within I think a few months of um my my first you know shoestring budget independent film premiering at the Sundance Film Festival um, Jeez. the budget for that was like $150,000 or something and then immediately <laughs> I was you know off shooting this you know massive, massive, huge uh, blockbuster film opposite people like Ian McKellen. Uh, and yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. Um, and uh, I treasure it. That's, that's fantastic. Um, Pyro, of course, mm-hmm. is one of the few characters that hasn't been recast in the current uh, X-Men First Class trilogy. Do you have any desire to ever climb back into a superhero film or, or are you good? Not that, not that you're practically not doing that uh, right now in Twelve Monkeys, frankly. Yeah, he's a hero in a way. Um, no, I, I, I certainly, uh, I, I wouldn't say no to something like that. Um, you know, I, I think as long as, as it's a good story, and uh, you know, the, the, the talent involved is, um, is, is of a high level, then um, you know, I, I think, I think anything is worth doing. I love it. On on that note, I, I think that we can release you back into the world. I appreciate it. Uh, Aaron, if, if people want to follow your continuing adventures online, where's the best place that they can find you? Twitter, Facebook? Where uh, where can people 
peer in and see what you're up to. I have to confess, I have to, confess to being a bit of a Luddite, and uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really keep up very much on social media. I don't have a Facebook. I do have a Twitter, uh, which has been kind of lying fallow. Uh, I'd be remiss with it, um, but I do. I, I do occasionally log in. Sometimes I, uh, I'll share a photo on Instagram or something like that. Very good, very good. Well, you know what? That might actually be the mentally healthier choice, frankly, to uh, to dodge some of those <laughs> outlets every once in a while. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate the time. 12 Monkeys Season 2 premieres on April 18th on the Sci-Fi Channel. I am among the legions of fans that cannot wait to have my brain scrambled all over the place one more time uh, with another great season. Uh, thanks so much for what you've done so far and looking forward to seeing what's next. Thank you very much. You got it. Have a great night. Season 2 of 12 Monkeys has just premiered on Sci-Fi. You can catch new episodes Mondays at 9. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. We're now four episodes in, and I think it's going pretty well. What do you think? Leave me a message at the social media channels, and you might even hear your name on the podcast. You'll be famous in the ears of tens of listeners. Thanks to all of you that have been listening from episode to episode and have shared your thoughts. A bunch of new listeners found the podcast since the last episode, including some folks from the Addicts of the 12 Monkeys Facebook group I mentioned during the interview. Such a warm group of fans who were very kind to me and the show. After listening to episode one, where I had a conversation with Todd Stashwick, also of 12 Monkeys fame, Jessica Hardaway said, Congrats on a great first interview. Thanks, Jessica. I hope you've enjoyed the others since then. Rick Bacon wrote, Good stuff, Brad. Earned an instant share. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. And Maria Foss called me awesome. Aw, Maria, you are awesome for submitting an awesome question for Aaron Stanford. Speaking of thanks, huge gratitude to sound magician, composer, and my co-producer, David Sisko. <laughs> you are and remain the finest audio jockey in all of New York City. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this free travel-sized chunk of Geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. Let people know that you're listening, just like Rick Bacon did. You can like the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and come check out some pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore Gigawatts on Instagram. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2 Awesome with our radtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. 1.21 Gigawatts, what every geek wants is what we got. From Doctor Who to Aqualad, we might think Luke and Leia's dead. Pop culture that is super rad, hosted by some guy named Brad. Something comes back in time, comes into contact with itself. Mother Nature doesn't like it when you rearrange your furniture.